everyone. Jonathan Walsh here. Thanks again for listening in to another episode of Don the Stat. We were planning to do this live uh, on Twitter Spaces as per our normal schedule of programming. Unfortunately, the Twitter sphere hasn't uh, been too kind to us and spaces were playing up. So we've jumped on Zoom. Humi, uh, welcome to you as always, mate. How's things? Yeah, good. No, no complaints. Just dealing with uh, two young kids and going back to work. Went back to work this week. So I uh, that was that was a bit of a culture shock after uh, three weeks off. Um, but other than that, no no complaints here. Wish we were talking about Essendon in finals, but we're just going through our our postseason sort of review. And it was really pleasing to to get the really good feedback for our season review shows that we've been doing over the past couple of weeks. Uh, really really pleased to to hear from others about how uh, they saw what we spoke about, and obviously getting into tonight. Um, with the questions from people, really looking forward to getting stuck into those. Yeah, absolutely. We've had lots of questions, I guess, in the lead up to this, but also over previous weeks that we just weren't able to get to because we managed to find a way to fill a whole lot of airtime. So, uh, yeah, it's been a great response and looking forward to to tackling a few of these. Yeah, well, speaking of ones that we've pushed back, we've had one from Silvertop Hurls that we've we've had for a couple of weeks and uh, you've actually gone into a lot of detail in, in your thoughts on this and been really keen to get to it. And we've, every week we've just managed to push it back, push it back. So Silvertop Hurls, we're finally going to cover your question from a couple of weeks back, which is where should we play Massimo D'Ambrosio? So obviously came into the side at half back uh, but the last couple of weeks showed that he also had skills up forward. So, Jono, where do you see us playing Massimo? Yeah, so I guess what I did first was to go back and look at the numbers. Uh, it's clear from the eye test watching him live and, and watching replays that he can play at both ends. He's, he's got a talent uh, and an ability to play at both ends of the ground. So if we have a look at, at the numbers and see how he compares... Uh, if we ignore, take take out the Giants game where he, he sat on the bench and was the sub for the entire match. And, and if we take out the Brisbane game where he was subbed off for the second half, where he got that knock, he's played four full games at half back and he's played two full games as a small forward. So small sample sizes, but we'll work with what we got. So as a, as a half back, he averaged 16.25 disposals per game. Um, uh, you know, again, we're only looking at a, a sample size of four, but Across the season, there were only nine rising star eligible players that averaged more disposals a game. So comparing him to his own cohort of players, that that you know, there's nine players who got more of the footy. I, I, the ones that are, I guess, most interesting to note, and I've left Nick Dacos out of this comparison because he's on a, another planet in terms of his ability, uh, but I'm try, uh, I've compared him to the guys that play at halfback or, or in the back line, and there's really only two that... Um, that average, you know, more, you know, disposals per game than he does. One's Heath Chapman, and the, who averaged 18 disposals, and the other's Jake Bowie, who averaged 16.7. So, you know, he's not too far from both. And, and when you look at the profile of those guys, Heath Chapman was taken at pick 14 in the 2000 national draft. So first round draft pick, been in the system now for a couple of years. He's 193 centimetres, so he's not the same profile of player. And he obviously started this year with some experience under his belt and some pre-seasons that Massimo didn't. But uh, I guess Massimo's ability to find the footy ranks uh, or rates, you know, pretty similar to his. And then you have Jake Bowie, who was picked 21 in that same draft as Chapman. So, again, another, well, early second-round draft pick. Uh, he has the experience of 
you know, not just having an, an extra year and a half in the system, but he also uh, has the experience of playing in a final series and a, and a premiership. So uh, both similar size. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's quite interesting to see that he's been able to come in and, and play half back and, and get similar amounts of footy of two guys who, I mean, Bowie's found his way out of the side, but, but have played some really good footy at senior level and have, you know, 18 months experience on them. Um, they both have slightly better disposal efficiency than, than Massimo, 80% for both of them compared to 76 for D'Ambrosio, but I'm not too concerned about that. I mean, it's a marginal difference. And the other thing that we know about Massimo is that he's a real risk taker. So he's, he's going to make more mistakes, but, uh, but I think we'll also see that improve over time as he learns the game, learns continuity with his teammates. And uh, when those things do come off, I think we're going to get much bigger rewards. Uh, Bowie and, and Chapman are a bit more of a safer distributor of the ball uh, in terms of taking safer options, that, that is, than, than what Massimo D'Ambrosio does. So I think he stacks up quite well there. As a small forward, the two that I thought I'd compare him to were Josh Rischelli and Jesse Motlop. Again, we're just comparing two games, but Massimo averaged nine disposals, three and a half tackles a game and two goals a game as a forward. Uh, again, we're comparing against pretty high draft picks. Rochelle was pick six in the draft last year. He's averaged 11 disposals, so a couple more than D'Ambrosio, uh, 1.3 goals and 1.9 tackles. So, yeah, goal average was about the same. Um, tackles was was fewer. And then Jesse Motlop was pick 27 in that draft. He's averaged eight disposals, 2.4 tackles and a goal a game. So, I know he's also been sub and, and that a little bit in there. Um, but again, Massimo compares really well against his peers, albeit, as I've mentioned, a, a, a smaller sample size. So I think at a really basic level, it's clear that he's got attributes to play at both ends. He finds the footy, he finds space. He's a really hard worker. He's got some really good football smarts and he's got exceptional foot skills. I'm glad that we did try him as a forward, both at VFL and AFL level, because we found something out about him. But I do want to see him develop at halfback. I think those those foot skills off halfback are invaluable. He's, he's vulnerable defending overhead, and we saw him get exposed a couple of times. He'll need to improve that. But I do think that's also on his teammates a little bit to help him and, and help him get the right matchups. You know, you, you think about how K- Caleb Daniels uh, been able to find a, a really – uh, you know, a strong career playing at halfback at his size. It's it's because of what he's able to do, but also because his teammates help and support him. So, I think uh, I think you know that can improve. And then pairing him up with Redmond gives us real daring and two real daring and aggressive halfbacks. And the thing I really like about D'Ambrosio that Redmond doesn't quite have is his ability to hit angle kicks that. That to be honest, most players in the competition don't have, and and we know how valuable getting the ball back into the corridor is in in modern football. So I think ultimately I'd like to see him push Nick Hind out of our best twenty-two and and take that spot. Uh, but that taste up, you know, taste up forward early in his career, I think is going to be handy for him. It does give us some flexibilities, some flexibility. Sorry, and and, and you know we now know that we've got an option there within the within the side if we need to mix things up and try and find a goal or two. What do you think, mate? So you've obviously made a lot of really good points and you've put a lot more thought into it than I have. But the thing that stands out to me is that we're actually fairly fairly strong in the back half at the, at the moment in terms of those sort of players. Obviously, you can always make improvements. And Massimo, I think I agree, would, would be someone who would be an improvement on the output Nick Hind produced this year. But 
I think our needs at the moment are, are more in the forward line. We really need that class going into forward 50, uh, whether that's uh, goal scoring itself or delivering the ball into the forward line. As, as you sort of pointed out, he's, he's really good with his, with his kicking and his, his angles. Um, I see that as a real positive to, you know, sort of draw forwards. To, he, he can kick to areas where which will draw the forwards towards it. Um, one of the things that our forwards don't necessarily naturally seem to do very well is lead. So if you have a player who can uh, draw, them to, draw them to the ball like that and encourage them to lead, it's going to be a big advantage there. And as, as we saw this year, one of the, one of the things that often happened is the ball would go in, um, we wouldn't take the mark and the, and the ball would, would sail out down the other end. And so by, you know, with a person of the skill of Massimo kicking into the forward line, likely you would get more marks inside 50. Um, and that's going to give us a bit of a twofold advantage. It's going to give us more shots on goal and it's going to give less opportunity for oppositions to rebound quickly. Even if you kick a point from it, you, you should hopefully be able to set up so, as I said, we have more of his type at, at halfback. And I guess the caveat on that is how quickly uh, players like the Davies come on and then also uh, Tex Wanganine, um as well. If they, those two, if those players can come on quickly next year, then I think you, you start to have more of a, a case for him to be at the halfback line. But I, at the moment, like him, like him as a forward, and that's where I would be starting him next year. Yeah, it's a fair call. I guess the uh, I think your comments are a really sound one in terms of using his foot skills to be able to hit targets inside 50. I agree it's a, a gaping hole. Uh, what I would like to see him do is develop in a similar way to what Daniel Rioli has done at Richmond in the last year or so at halfback. And, uh, you know, we saw Rioli against us, but that's not the only example where he's, you know, uses his speed and his smarts to really get high up the ground and still deliver the ball inside 50. I think uh, if Massimo can develop that, at least for, for me as a halfback, I think, uh, yeah, it, it adds a, a real weapon to our side. Yeah, well, I, th- I don't think you can go wrong either way. I think. No, it's it's going to ultimately be, a, a, you know, the early days based on what we've seen of him, I think it's going to be a good problem to have. Absolutely. Uh, so thanks for that question, Silver Top Hills. Hopefully we've answered that to your uh, satisfaction. Uh, Vince uh, Tascunas, another of our uh, regulars, also asked us about uh, the rutten sacking and the panel to appoint new senior coach, looking more as well at the assistant coaches who are there, uh, who are going to be there next year based on based on those who are here. So how, how do you review the performances of assistant coaches um, and that they should share some of the responsibility for the uh, for the losses this year? And so I guess if you think about it, most of all, most if not all of our assistant coaches are contracted for next year. Um, and I think with assistant coaches, there's a, there's a point in the season where you have to inform them that whether their services are required the next year so they can go and find work. It's probably a lot more challenging for people in the assistant coach role. Um, they're less likely to get that payout that the senior coach will get. Obviously, uh, Rutten wasn't treated very well, but he, he's, he's got money for next year. You know, he's not going to be out, out on the street. Whereas with the assistant coaches, you're a lot more tenuous there. So I think it's likely, especially especially now that we've, we've missed out on Clarko, um, obviously, obviously Ross Lyon is not interested. Um, this is very unlikely we're going to have a senior coach who's going to want to bring in their own team. Uh, I think it's more likely that we'll be keeping our assistant coaches um, in, in those roles next year, even if they take up a different position within the coaching structure. 
And I guess it's difficult to tell who's at fault in particular situations. I mean, if, if there was just one area of the ground where we were falling down, then you could potentially consider the line coach in charge of that area as having a responsibility. But there were a variety of failures this year across the ground. So, you know, you can't necessarily say this one coach was responsible for that. And even then, you're also dealing with a quite a young and developing side. So the messages from the coaches might be might be quite good. You know, GNC accuser, Carousella, um, very highly rated. Um, Carousella has obviously been involved with multiple uh, premiership sides. Uh, GNC accuser was the uh, assistant coach of the year a couple of years back. So they're, they're, not, they're not scrubs. They, they clearly know what they're doing. It may just be that the messages they're getting from the coaches are the right ones, but the players aren't at a level of experience or maturity where they can carry them out consistently. Yeah, I think it's really hard to know what the dynamic was from the outside looking in. I think if we look at what we do know, or, or at least it appears, and you know, there's been some comments made, I guess particularly by Josh Marnie, and look, who, who knows how much of that is you know, an element of, you know, an outlet of emotion, an element of, um, uh, you know, pushing Xavier Campbell, uh, kicking him while he's down or or even him building his own profile and, and perhaps playing a little bit politically. Um, but, you know, it appears that we had a CEO who had pretty much full control over the decision-making within the football department and he had the full support of the senior coach. So I think we, I think that's been pretty well established. Rutten was Campbell's man. And, you know, Campbell was going to support Rutten until the cows came home. Um, what we do know, and you touched on this already, you know, Gia was the forwards coach of the Bulldogs when they won the flag in 2016. He was the assistant coach of the year in 2020. Dale Tapping has coached his own team at the Sandingham Dragons uh, in the TAC Cup. He's, he's coached Collingwood's VFL side. And then he was a key figure in Brisbane's coaching setup as they climbed up the ladder. And Blake Carousella on top of, you know, what we know he did as a player and, and obviously one of the smartest football brains, um, you know, certainly in my time watching football. But he was in the coaching setups at Geelong and Richmond during premiership season. So they're all highly credentialed. I guess what I don't know is how much autonomy they did or didn't have over their, their own area. So I, I find this one a little bit hard to answer. But I, I think ultimately it's a collective responsibility when, when you have a year like we did. Uh, but clearly the football department wasn't functioning as well as it should have. And, you know, were they a product of the environment? I, I suspect maybe that the answer lies with a little bit of both. Yeah. I, as, as I said, I think it'd be interesting to see whoever the new coach is, how, what sort of setup they, they move those uh, coaches into, whether, um, as you say, someone like a GNC accuser who, uh, you know, is, is a premiership, you know, assistant coach as a, as a forwards coach goes goes to be the forward coach next year, you know, putting them in, in positions that they're, uh, they've shown to be strong at. I mean, I know for, for someone like GNC Recuser, part of the reason why he's, he's doing the defensive or, or other areas is because he's obviously trying to build his resume to be a senior coach and you want to give the, those, um, those assistant coaches the opportunities to do that. Keeping keeping those strong assistant coaches in in your setup while also giving them the opportunity to grow. So, like, yeah, as you say, it's it, it's hard to tell, um, and I, I suspect we'll see a lot of them next year. And and how they go working with the senior coach in a new uh, high performance environment that we'll get following the review will be interesting to see. Yeah, completely agree, mate. Yeah. All right. So the next one is from Anthrop. Uh, he is asking us about. Um, you know, on on potential coaches, uh, he, he's brought up Uze and Pike, and and looking at um, 
the teams that they're involved with at the moment, Melbourne and Sydney. And obviously both those sides are in the finals. And uh, considering all the, the current successful game plans, and, and you would consider the, the, the game plans of the sides that have made the finals to be uh, successful, uh, who would you like to see us replicate, but also tweak for us to be a success? And I guess which fits the list. And my first thought when I when I heard this question was that I think the game plan that we most would be able to replicate at the moment is the Bulldogs, um, just just the way that they play. But um, I wouldn't want to uh, take the team in that direction because I I don't really rate what they're doing. I think I don't think they're using their resources very well. Um, I don't think their game plan really holds up that well and I just don't think they get the best out of the resources with that with that style of game plan I don't know what are your thoughts there yeah no I I agree on that mate I think we uh, we don't have the right list at the moment so I think uh, you need to find an element of of building a game plan that's going to take you forward but then having tweaks in it that allow your the list that you do have to get the best out of them so you don't want to go 100% down the path of going, this is where we see ourselves winning a flag in three years and, and how we're going to play and play that way 100%. You need to have, uh, you know, an element within it that you allow your your setup or your your, your team to, to develop based on the strengths and weaknesses that you got on your list um, at that time. But I, I think ultimately we, we've got a fair bit of list work to do to be able to to get to you know any of those finals teams at the moment, uh, and yeah, you know, a lot of that can happen over one off season. You know, we, we've seen that happen before. It's happened with Collingwood. So, I, I'd actually like to see a blend of two. I think what Melbourne does well in their ability to set up the ground and close space defensively is is the best in the business. Despite their loss to the Swans, they're still the hardest team to score against. They've only had 100 points scored against them once this season prior to the uh, – I don't know, actually, I think the Swans scored 91 on the weekend. So, um, yeah, 100 points scored against them once this season. The Dogs got them by 10 points in a game that was a real shootout at Marvel. It, it really opened up and uh, I guess they probably allowed the Dogs – to play the game on their terms a little bit more than the normal. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a tremendous record. And they conceded 90 points in, in only four other games. And that was against the Dockers, Geelong, Collingwood, and then the Swans, as I mentioned, in the qualifying finals. So I think they're, they're the benchmark in terms of setting up a ground defensively, closing space, pressing, and, and winning the ball back off the opposition and using your defender's uh, you know, winning the ball back um, through uh, through turnover and through intercept. Uh, I, I think at times we were able to replicate elements of it, but I do think we need to find a big-bodied key defender to free up Laverde to play more of uh, the intercepting role that that May is able to play. So you see, uh, you know, Melbourne are able to set up with May and and Lever doing a lot more of the intercepting work because they're able to rely on someone like Petty. To, to lock down, but they also know they can switch May around when they need him if someone's getting away from them. So I, I think we we probably don't yet have that petty type role. I guess um, I, I guess Cirque Thatcher could develop into it in time, um, but I, yeah, I still think we have some work to do to to be able to free Laverde up to to play that that more of an intercepting role. And I think from a, a I guess a physical presence. Um, Laverde and, and May are, are similar dimensions. Uh, I think we need to add some real run on the outside. And again, that could come with the development of, of Martin and Durham, but I suspect that we do need to recruit to add to that. I don't think we've got enough of that 
two-way running on our list. And I do think we we need some real class at half back. Uh, you know, you think of the the way that that Melbourne are able to dispose of the ball through their their really good users at half back, blokes like Jaden Hunt and Christian Salom, and then connecting with their wingers uh, is really important. Again, D'Ambrosio in time could be that player. Um, you know, Redmond's obviously taken a big step forward. So we, I think we've got some of the makings there, but we need to add to that. And then the other thing, Melbourne, that really works well for them is they've got those small to medium forwards that that really have a lot of class. They've got mids that can go forward and kick goals. You know, Petrarca is is the obvious one, uh, but they've got those those medium and small forwards uh, that that really are able to hit the scoreboard. Uh, but they're also able to put pressure on the ball coming out. And and again, you know, we we recruited Menzi in the preseason draft. We added Wanganeen at the start of the year. Perkins has shown signs. You know, we all expect the Davy boys to come in and and come into the list next year. So, you know, maybe we're we're developing that part of our list as well, but that's going to take some time for to to really gel and to work. Uh, so, you know, we may look to 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 speed that up a little bit through through free agency or through um, delisted free agents, um, you know, in the in the coming, you know, trade and, and free agency period. So, yeah, I, I guess defensively, I really like what Melbourne do and, and what they go about it. Where I think Melbourne suffer, and we saw that on the weekend, is they, they back their system in so much that they they don't move away from it when things aren't going their way. And and what they do ultimately rely on in those situations, I think, is is their star power to shine through. So Petrarca or Oliver or the likes having really big games, Cosie Pickett doing something to turn it around or or whatnot. And and when that doesn't happen, they end up in situations that they found themselves on the weekend where where the Swans have proved themselves over the, the course of the season, not just in the qualifying final, to have that, uh, you know, the tonic that they needed to to move the ball through Melbourne's, you know, set up and press. And, you know, it's not just what happened on the weekend. You know, they, they of course, beat Melbourne at the MCG in a final, which is a significant achievement. But they beat Frio over in Perth and they beat Geelong, albeit early in the season, back in round two. And, and the thing that those three teams have in common, not just that they're playing finals and and um, and are still alive, is they were the three, you know, they were one, two, and three in terms of the least points scored against. So the Swans' ball movement has found a way this season to break down the three best defensive teams in the competition and, and be able to score against them. And I think we have probably more elements on our list at the moment that allow us to get a little bit closer to that Swans ball movement than perhaps the Melbourne defensive setup and press. But we do definitely need to add more size or, or more depth to our midfield. You know, the Swans do run a lot of blokes through there. We need to add more size and, and grunt. You, you know, you have a look at what Chad Warner's been able to do for them this year, adding to the, you know, Mills who's playing a lot more time inside, adding, you know, to, to Luke Parker who was already there. We don't have that real inside brunt um, and size at the contest at the moment. And what and in getting that and developing that, what we will be able to do is squeeze the likes of Merritt and, and Martin, for, who does tend to come into the contest at times a bit. We'll be able to squeeze them further outside the contest and use their foot skills really well. Um, of course, the other thing that we've already mentioned in the Melbourne case that that the Swans have in abundance that we don't have is that, that small and medium forwards um, adding a lot of class and, and contributing on the scoreboard, but also providing that pressure on the way out. So, yeah, that was a bit of a long-winded answer, mate, but that was a really good question. I enjoyed um, thinking through that one. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I think 
if you think about it long term, it, it may be that we we copy, we take elements of, of other team styles, or, or we we have a coach that is able to develop their own style, and you know maybe even become a trendsetter for the competition. And it would be interesting to see how that plays out with the new coach. Uh, this next question comes from uh, Bomber Blitz, actually, from Sam Woods. Uh, it's a question about disposal efficiency and and what sort of stat, whether it has any any value and how you should use it. So I had a bit of a think about this one. I think the first thing to understand is disposal efficiency should be judged on a positional basis um, in comparing places, um, when comparing, sorry, rather than comparing players within a team. So, you know, Darcy Parrish as an inside midfielder's disposal efficiency is not comparable to Jordan Ridley's disposal efficiency. The best way to firstly judge disposal efficiency is with comparisons to players who play a similar role. So, for example, if you let's compare Parish uh, 2021, obviously when he had quite a good year, um, with Clayton Oliver's the same year. So, players you would consider to play similar roles for their for their sides, you get a sense of how those players are performing. So, Oliver was at 69%, while Parish was at 72% for that year. And if you actually look at this year, Darcy improved his disposal efficiency this year to 74%. So, in some ways, you would go, well, you know, he, he's getting better in that sense. But then you have to sort of take into account the changes in style between the two years. So particularly earlier in the season, Essendon were playing much more safe footy uh, compared to last year. So in that scenario, a player's disposal efficiency is generally going to be higher uh, higher then because they're, they're taking safe options that are, that are coming off and it's going towards that disposal efficiency stat. And I think the other thing to be aware of, the disposal efficiency is only relevant in regard to the immediate disposal. Okay, so the immediate hand pass or the immediate kick. It doesn't take into account how that disposal is used to set up scores uh, around the ground. So if you again, if you look at Parrish, I'm going to pick on Parrish again, um, Parrish's score involvement, which I think is a really good metric for how effective a player is, uh, dropped from 7.6 in 2021 to 6.9 a game in 2022, and that's despite his disposal efficiency going up. So, if, you know, a 15-minute meter kick sideways to an uncontested player is going to get you an effective disposal, but it's not likely to generate a score. So I guess, in general, disposal efficiency on its own can be useful, um, but it's best used in conjunction with other other metrics as well to get, to get, get a sense of how, how effective a player is at, at playing and, and contributing to wins. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add, mate. I, I think it's all about context, and I think you've nailed the two key, key points. You, you use it to compare players who are in similar roles, but I think you also should blend that with with other stats as well. So, you know, if you're looking at Oliver versus Parrish is a really good example. Parrish at 72% versus Oliver at 69%. They largely play um, similar role, but I would – and I haven't looked at the numbers in this example, but I'd be looking at, at – that other things around it, like their, uh, you know, their clearance rate, their score involvement rate, their score launch rate, their inside fifty rate, those kind of things to, the, you know, to to really paint a full picture of which player is is using the ball better and being more effective. I think this is where meters gained, by an, to an extent, can help a little bit as well. Uh, meters gained is not a stat that I, I do put a whole lot of value in, but it does give you a bit of an indication, particularly when you've got players that get similar disposal numbers of whether they're moving the ball forward or sideways uh, more often. Uh, so, yeah, I think context is really important. And I think at the start of the season, you know, sort of 
nine or ten rounds in, we were the the number one side in the comp from memory for disposal efficiency and also had the least turnovers. Uh, but we were getting smashed week in, week out. And, and I think ultimately that was just because of that slow, um, uh, you know, sideways ball movement, which is is really helpful for disposal efficiency, but but not too good for getting scores on the board. So, yeah, I think like any stat really, I, I think it's um, it, it should be taken in, in a lot of context and looked at. I, you know, go on what you see first, um, you know, watch the game first and then go to, to the stats to help give you a bit of a guide. But, um, but beyond that, I think, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a blend of stats to, to give you a real guide and context to what you're seeing. Yeah, and it, it sort of builds on what uh, Sam's next question was um, about looking at the stats to give some direction as to who we should take with our first pick at the draft. And I, I, when I was planning my response, I, I basically said what you just said there, that trust your eye and then see if the stats back you up, which I think they do in the case that I'm going to bring up. And it's again, it's something you brought up earlier, which is the, um, you know, that bigger body midfielder. And I think the stat that best reflects that is our stoppage clearance differential. It's, it's been really poor. So it ranks 11th last year and 12th this year. So if you consider the difference between stoppage clearances and centre clearances, stoppage clearances is, is a lot more of a congested environment than, than a centre clearance. So in that sense, it favours bigger players that either can bullock their way through or provide blocks for other players to get clear. So if you're wanting to address that, you're wanting to pick someone who has the potential to be what I would consider to be as sort of an 88 kilogram plus midfielder. Ideally, you get, you know, someone of the Crips mould, but, you know, that's a bit of a unicorn pick and it's unlikely that we'll, we'll get one of those, but you want someone a bit bigger. So if you consider our regular uh, midfielders, Merritt's the biggest at 85 kilograms now. You do have Langford at 88 and Stringer at 90, but uh, I don't think either of those would be considered to be part of the regular, you know, midfield rotation. Um, Stringer obviously goes in at centre bounces, but not really as much at the stoppages. So the problem this year, and we'll probably go more into it when we look at our draft show, is that the players that at the moment that could grow into that type of player are rated to the back half of the top 10. So uh, if you look at any phantom drafts, you're looking at players like McKenzie and Philippou. So you're potentially slightly reaching to get that player. Now, you know, you're probably talking about, you know, using pick five to get someone rated at pick seven or eight. So it's not a huge stretch, um, but I tend to believe that first round, unless there is a a gaping hole that you're trying to fill, you should be picking best available, um, who you project is going to be the best player overall, um, rather than trying to fill holes. Trying to fill holes, I think, works better later in the draft. So, yeah, that's... That's how I would use the stats there. As I said, we'll, we'll go into it more detail when we do our drafts and trading show. Um, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that one, Johnny. Yeah, a, a little bit. I think, uh, yeah, and, and having worked uh, on some drafts, you know, a number of years ago, uh, don't typically use stats data a whole lot in decision-making, particularly in your first in the first round, the, the general rule with your first pick, particularly when you've got such a high pick like we do, is that you just take the player that you think is the best. The, the exception to that might be looking at the balance of your list. So, you know, for example, and, and I'm, I'm pretty certain it's not the case this year, but we probably wouldn't take a Ruckman with our first pick this year, given that we've got two you know, highly talented, young, developing Ruckman, adding a third to that wouldn't make a lot of sense, even if we did deem him to be the best player at the ground. I, I think you're, uh, then the the next question that you've got to ask is, you, are you drafting a guy who's going to give you something right now to improve some weaknesses that are in your team? Or are you making a list management decision 
based on what players you might see exit in two, three, four years' time when the player that you're drafting at the moment is um, is likely to to be off the list. And and I think you've you've painted a really good picture there of some examples. So so you're right. We we clearly need some real grunt and size and stature at the stoppage to help uh, you know add some bulk create some space and, you know, like we touched on, get players like Merritt and, and the like, you know, Martin to be able to to do what they do best and that's kick the footy. So do we do we do that with our first pick or do we look at our list and go, you know, we've got someone like Dylan Shield who's got a unique um, trait in terms of players on our list, that real fast explosion from stoppage, but he's, 29, 30, he's had some injury issues. He may only have two or three years left. Who's our next Dylan Shield on the list? And I think if you look at it, there's there's probably no one uh, who can you, who you would expect to come in and play that. You know, we've got Hobbs and Perkins coming through, but they're not that type of player. So, uh, and then the other thing I guess you can look at or, or the other area that we're all crying out for is that really dynamic high half forward, uh, you know, running forward, he can get back and hit the scoreboard. So, you know, you've got a player like Sheasel, et cetera, who could, who fits that mold, who, who could potentially come in and have an impact right now again. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably less about data, but all more so about how do you rank players right now? What do you, what does your list need now? And are you prepared to play a longer game in your list management strategy than, than, um, than what you're looking for right now? Uh, I, I suspect that we'll go, regardless of all of that, we'll just take the best player. Uh, and I think that's probably likely to be a midfielder, um, regardless of size or shape. Well, yeah. And as I said, we're going to have a, a series of draft and, and trade shows where we'll, we'll probably go into this in more detail. We're going to have some guests on to help discuss what the options are. We're going to have to cut that short. Um, we will get to the rest of the questions in a later uh, episode, uh, hopefully coming out in the next couple of days. Uh, Jono, thanks for, thanks for jumping on and, and getting that done, even though we had a bit of trouble with the Twitter spaces. Uh, managed to get something out there, at least to sate the, sate the public's um, hunger for Don the Sat content. Yeah, no, my pleasure, mate. I think, uh, yeah, we, we go into these with intentions to keep it short and sharp and we end up uh, having a lot of ground to cover. So I think doing this in two parts will give our voices a rest, but also our, our listeners' ears a rest. Uh, I do want to shout out again to, to Dan Eddy. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the the interview that we did with him a week or so ago, uh, get back and give it a listen uh, for those that are really interested in the history of, of Essendon Football Club and also Dan's story. Uh, yeah, it, it was a, a fantastic uh, episode. So to get back to that one. But yeah, thanks again and, and look forward to picking up our way or picking our way through the rest of the questions in the next couple of days. Absolutely. Go Dons.